Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Hey family, good morning. It is good to see you. You saw the lower podium here this morning and you thought something was afoot. Some short guy would be preaching this morning and so we're going to do this. Hey listen, Isaiah chapter 52 and we're going to start there in verse 13 and we're going to walk all the way through chapter 53 and I just, I think this could be incredibly powerful. Um, But words alone won't do that. Like there's not a word in my vocabulary or yours or if we pulled them all together, that would suffice. So let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would seize our attention. That you would capture it so deeply and profoundly and hold it there. That we would see the beauty of your son, Jesus. And that everything would pale in comparison. That all of the hurt and the pain and the stuff that we're walking through and the stuff that's going on would just, at least for a few moments, not stand in the way of us seeing you. Give us eyes to see. I pray a supernatural work of your spirit that we might be able to see and behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You guys can be seated. We're going to dive right in here this morning. Let me lay a few cards on the table for you. I think this is kind of a safe place to lay these cards. I don't think anybody's going to be surprised at what I'm about to tell you. I believe, that's me personally, I believe that Jesus, the Jesus story, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, if you want to call it that, or I believe this book is the truest story that there is. Okay, We all live by narratives. We all live by stories. There's all kinds of uh, good sociological, I didn't say that very well, data that supports this. But we have a framework by which we interpret life. Some people will call those stories. And I believe this one to be the one that most profoundly corresponds with reality. You know that's what truth is, right? Truth is what corresponds with reality. It's what lines up with reality, matches up with reality. And I believe the one that Jesus is about. His life, his death, his resurrection, I believe they are by far and above the truest story ever told. I believe that Christianity says of itself, this is the true story of life, of meaning, of of purpose, of the world, of God, of all that is. I believe that this is the truest story. And because I believe this, what I often want to do is, this might take you by surprise because I make fun of nerds a lot. And if you're a nerd in the house, hey, we love you anyway. Listen, I feel like there are more and more nerds now. Is that true? Let me make this up. I feel like nerds are taking over the world now. And if you're a nerd, then I'm going to ride on your coattails because I'm not. So anyways, let's go on into this. I believe that all of this is true and that this is the truest story that has ever been told. And because I believe this, here's what I want to be. Like deep down inside, I want to be this professor type. 
You know the one with the really good beard and the pipe and the glasses who looks down over the top of him like this, and he sits back in his chair and he writes, and I want to be that guy. I want to be this supreme intellect. Don't laugh. That's not funny. <laughs> don't, don't hurt my feelings. But then I, here's what happens. Like, I want to argue the truth and the relevance and the reason behind the existence of God and the truth of Jesus Christ and why he is the truest story ever told. I want to do that. Like, I, because I believe this, I want to argue this. But then I soon run into the limit of my own intellect. Anybody? You ever met the limit of your own intellect? Ask your neighbor. They probably will tell you a time when you ran into the limit of your own intellect. I believe Jesus to be this true story, but I believe that my intellect is not enough to describe it or capture it or describe it in detail enough. I just I know it's there, and I know the evidence supports it to anybody who wants to see it. I know the evidence is there, but I find the limit of my intellect. I also believe this about Jesus, that I believe his way of life is the best way of life. And that there is nothing better that you or I could do than following Jesus with the totality of our being. I believe there's nothing better for us. Like, life makes sense. It works when we do this. I believe that when we follow Jesus and submit to his authority and follow his rule and reign, I mean, life works. Not that it's perfect. Not that we don't suffer. But suffering is, has this redemptive edge to it, right? And so I believe this. And, but even here, like... I get this, and I believe this, and this is my card laying on the table. I believe that this is true, and because I believe this is true, I want to be this kind of coach like Phil Jackson. You guys, please tell me. I'm sorry. I used a basketball reference that really only matters to about three people in this place. I apologize. Phil Jackson coached Michael Jordan, and you definitely need to know Michael Jordan. If you don't know Michael Jordan, you have no place in this church, whether you're a nerd or not. I'm just kidding. This is why Nathan only lets me preach every so often, okay? I make a lot of really bad jokes, and it's filmed, and I forget about all that, okay? So Phil Jackson was this great basketball coach, great mind. Pick any great coach you want. I feel like this is what I want to be spiritually. I want to guide people into the practicalities of following Jesus because I know that it's worth it. I know that it works. I know that it's real. I've lived long enough to try many different approaches to life, and I've lived long enough to watch one effort after another fail and always to come back to this same conclusion that what Jesus said was right, good, and true. But even then, I find my own limit to live the way of Jesus. My own limit to lead other people there well. So I have these grand beliefs and I have these desires that go with these beliefs that I want to be this professor type or I want to be this coach type. And all of this is said and all of this is true and all of these things have their place. But then I come to this place where I realize that Jesus is more than just a set of teachings. He is more than just a truth. He is more than just a reality that corresponds with the reality that I see and that I experience. And I come to this truth that I realize that Jesus is more than just an example. He's more than just a set of good teachings and a good way to do life. I come to this conclusion that Jesus, he is good. He is true. He is right. But above all of these things, Jesus is beautiful. Like beautiful, like stunningly beautiful, compelling, like objectively beautiful. You know what I mean by objectively beautiful? You know, some things are subjective beauty, right? My mom thinks even I'm handsome, right? That's subjective beauty, right? But there is objective beauty. My sons are dang stud muffins, right? I mean, they're pretty babies. I don't care who you are, okay? You're welcome. You preach. They're like, they're like hey, I've never heard the amen in church. And now they're like, oh, yeah, we're all about it. Okay, feed me lunch. Uh, so there is this subjective 
beauty, but I listen, there is some beauty that is just like stunningly beautiful, right? And you don't need a profound, wise teacher to get you there. And you don't need some great coach to teach you the practicalities of it. All you need to do is look and behold it, right? Listen to verse number 13 of chapter 52. Behold, the very first word in this whole section of verses is this. It is the only command given in all of this text. And it is this, to behold, to fix your attention, your eyes, your gaze upon the servant. And everything that follows this verse is this beautiful poetry and prophecy, this description with pinpoint accuracy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it is written some 700 to 800 years before Jesus ever takes on flesh and blood. I mean, this is this is my blowing and all of it is this all of it is this incredibly beautiful description of the person and character and work of Jesus Christ and man it will stun your heart silent have you ever been to the Grand Canyon a couple of you been there Okay, so let's say we load it up in the van. We just load it all up. The Bradley's got a big enough van for all of us. We'll just load all up in there, right? We'll drive to the Grand Canyon, and we'll stand there, and here's what we can do. We can gather all the intellectual resources and talk to you about how it was formed and how deep it is and all of this kind of stuff, and we can give you all of the intellect, right? And that may be good and serve its purpose. Or we could go in and we could talk about the best ways to get down to the bottom. Some of you say, I'm flying in a helicopter. I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I'm scared. Uh, some of you say, well, ride a donkey. I'm not. I'm scared. Listen, if I'm getting to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, I know it's long. I'm walking. I trust these. And they're not even trustworthy. But I trust these more than I trust all that other stuff. This is how I'm going. So we could talk about the practicalities of how to get down to it. Or we could talk about the science and everything behind it. Or we could just stand there and behold the beauty of it. You don't need a wise guy, do you? Have you ever stood at the rim of this thing and you have literally no words left to say? I mean, what if we stood in the presence of Jesus this morning and we didn't have to take the time to explain it? That's good. We've spent weeks in Matthew chapter 5 talking about the instruction of Jesus, right? We could spend weeks talking about the evidence of the truth claims of Jesus. But what if just for a moment, what if we set all that aside and we just beheld the beauty of Jesus? Would it not stun our hearts silent to behold the beauty of a redeeming king who would go through what he will go through for us? Listen, sometimes we can set those things aside. Sometimes we don't need the instruction. We, we need the instruction and we need the evidence and all those things are good and right and have their place. But listen, there's so much going on, right? Do you ever just get tired? We're just exhausted. And then all that's going on in here, like you ever just feel like you need to come up for air? And knowledge doesn't do that. Practicality doesn't do that. You know what does that? Beauty. I will go back to the Grand Canyon, not because I understand it, not because I can explain it, not because I hiked it, but because it is beautiful. And what if, here's what beauty will do that wisdom will not do. Beauty will catch this. It will catch your heart more than just your mind, more than just your body. Beauty will catch your heart. There is a bottle of water somewhere. I think it's back there. Would you go grab that? So let's, all right, so I told some people we're going to go all the way through this text. Can you guys do that with me? Okay. 
So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to move fast. I'm not going to explain everything in it, but I just want to, here's what I want to do. I just want to walk to the edge of this canyon. And the only way you don't see this beauty is if you refuse to look. You don't need a wise guide. You don't need a skilled practitioner to see this. You just need eyes to see. Okay, let's go. Chapter 52, verse number 13, begins this summary of everything that is about to be talked about in here. To be sure there is truth in this, there is practicality in this, this text was written over 700 to 800 years before Jesus Christ ever came on the scene. Early Jewish writers before Jesus absolutely believed that this prophecy was talking about the Messiah. There is too much in this, too much pinpoint accuracy to argue that it could be anybody else than Jesus Christ. Though after Jesus Christ, now it seems like everybody wants to argue that, and that seems to be Anyway, there's a whole lot to that. And we could talk about these beautiful things, but there are, this is referenced over 85 times in the New Testament or alluded to. This passage of Scripture, over 85 times, it is either referenced or alluded to in the New Testament. And it is, oft, it is always applied to Jesus Christ. And what we're talking about here is 800 years before Jesus ever took on flesh and blood, the prophet is moved by the Spirit of God to write these things with such accuracy that you cannot mistake it, who he's talking about. And it's, here, here it is. It's not only things that he does, but it's things that are done to him. So it's not like he could just read the list and go, okay, got to check that one off, right? I mean, these are things that are outside of his control. We'll put that in air quotes, right? Because you understand the theological implications of that. So there are some things here that just are mind-blowing the way that this works. But here's what he says, okay? Verse number 13, behold, look at this. Fix your attention on this. Fix your gaze. Do not miss. This is weighty. This is important. And here's what he says, my servant. In some of your versions, this is capitalized. The servant in the book of Isaiah refers to many different people, but at least Often it refers to the person of Jesus Christ. It is interpreted and applied to Jesus in the New Testament. But here's what he's telling us. My servant, in other words, the one who would do the will of the Father, who would do the will of the Father faithfully, perfectly, willingly, even gladly. The book of Philippians says that he will become obedient even to the death of the cross, right? And so here's what he calls him. He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Anybody's version have prudently there? Okay, we got some prudently. This is my son reading the King James up here. I just shed a tear in my heart for that. I just really did. I love it, okay? Um, and so you got prudently and wisely. They kind of mean the same thing, but this, this word is kind of loaded with meaning and context, okay? So it basically means this, that my servant will deal in a way that is wise and prudent, but not only will he have wisdom and have prudence, but he will actually apply that to the situation and it will be successful because he did so. So how many of you have ever known the right thing but done the wrong thing? How many of you are confused by the question, okay? If you're sitting next to somebody who didn't raise their hand, raise their hand for them, okay? This is what works, right? Okay, so you understand that wisdom is no maybe knowing what to do, but it's, you, there's more than just knowing. Right? you got to put this into practice when the rubber meets the road. And so what this means is this, is that not only will this servant have this wisdom and foresight and knowledge, but that he will actually put it into practice in such a way that the mission succeeds, the plan succeeds. What mission? What plan? We'll go on and it'll kind of become clear as we go. Okay? So here we go. Verse number 14. And as, or I'm sorry, I skipped it. Don't want to go too fast. Already failed that mission, right? He shall be high, and he shall be lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Did you notice that all three of these things seem to say the same thing? 
So it's basically, if you look at that clock, don't look at the clock. Don't want to know what time it is. But you can say it's either 5 till 12, it's uh, 11.55, or it's, there's another one, right? 55 after 11. And you can say it three different ways, right? It all means the same thing. And these three words, whenever they're grouped together in Scripture's writing, it's meant to be emphatic, Okay? You're meant to understand that this is a point of emphasis. And so it says, the servant who will deal prudently and wisely and be successful and prosperous in his mission, because he will be successful and prosperous in his mission, he will be exalted and high and lifted up. By the way, Isaiah's terms for God, the Holy One, are high and lifted up. Okay? And it says he will be exalted. As a matter of fact, the book of Philippians will say this, that he has given him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, he will be exalted above every other thing. Whatever it is that is high, Jesus will be higher. The servant will excel to the highest point. But now watch this. Verse 14. But before he does that, he will descend to the lowest depths. And as many as were astonished at you, they're shocked. This servant will succeed in his mission and he will rule the world. But on his way to that authority and high place, many will be shocked at him. Why? Pay attention to the next part. And if you don't have a Bible, you need to have one in front of your lips. Don't even look at me. I don't, that, it's better for you to look at the scripture than me and you know that without saying amen. Okay. Um, remember, subjective beauty. Okay. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. The word marred means to be disfigured. It means to be destroyed. It means that his appearance, his physical form, would be disfigured, destroyed, and ruined. It is a reference to his sufferings. And listen to how he says this. It would be beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What does that mean? It means this, that he would endure such suffering that it would, there would be barely any traces of his humanity left. Have you ever, have you ever met somebody like, who's just lived a really hard life and they've lived it for a long time and you can see it on their face? Like early on, there's pictures of their beauty and their health and their vitality, and you're looking at them now and you're going, what in the world happened to you? And what it is, is it's just a long extended period of suffering and grief and hurt because here's the truth. And I don't know how this works. I don't get science. I'm not a nerd. Remember, we laid that up front at the, at the beginning. Okay. But I do know this, that intense suffering emotionally even can change your very physical appearance. Not to mention what Jesus goes through when they lay a cat of nine tails on his back and it rips his flesh open. Not to mention what he looks like when they place a crown of thorns upon his head and they smack it down so that it's good and tight with a reed. We're not even there yet. His figure will be so marred. His appearance will be so disfigured beyond Human semblance, there'll be any trace of his humanity left. You may not even be able to understand that it was human to begin with. Notice verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Some of your versions will have startle many nations. The word sprinkle may have some old English connotation, but it seems to be in context here that the author is saying that this servant, who will be high and lifted up, 
But before he is high and lifted up, will be disfigured and marred before, I mean, beyond human comprehension. And that will shock the nations. It will stun them silent. Kings will shut their mouths at him. You know what it takes to get a king to shut his mouth? Almost as much as get a preacher to shut his mouth, right? I mean, this is, this is what he's saying here. They will stand stunned in silence. The suffering servant will rise to such heights and be exalted so high, and he will travel this path of the cross that will lead him to this exaltation, and kings will literally shut their mouths stunned in silence at him. Notice how he says, For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they had not heard, they understand. In other words, the things that... if Listen, if you pulled all of our imaginations together, the truths that he is talking about would not even begin to enter in the wildest of imaginations in the human capacity. It is so beyond us to come up with this kind of plan that it demands revelation. What that means is this. It demands for God to step in and say, Hey, hey, I can't whistle. Okay, look here, fix your attention, behold this, because if you don't fix your eyes on this, you won't come up with this plan. You won't put these pieces together. This is God waving at us saying, hey, listen, here is life, here is truth, here is redemption. Don't miss it. And so he goes on, let's go. 53 verse number one, who has believed uh, what he has heard from us, that's his words. In other words, who believes the message that we preach? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So in the first part of this, you're talking about the message. And in the second part of verse 1, you're talking about the actions. The arm of the Lord means what he does. It means his work, right? So here's what the prophet is saying. Who buys this? Who buys this story? Nobody's going to believe this. Nobody's going to believe what we say. Nobody's going to believe what God does. Because this is hard to believe. And so he goes on, so he sets us up, and he wants us to understand that this message, as beautiful as it is, is not easily believed or bought into. Why? Verse 2, for he grew up before him as a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. You know what a root out of dry ground means? There's no probability. Have you ever, have you ever seen a tree that's been chopped down, and there's like a little sprout growing up in this chopped down tree? This is kind of the picture that we get. In other words, Jesus will come from a place that you would have picked as the last place for the Redeemer of mankind to come from. You won't see it coming. There's no pomp. There's no circumstance. There's nothing leading up to it to, de to declare his royalty over all of the world. There's nothing about it that will say, hey, this is the man. In other words, there's no probability. You never would have picked this guy. He, look at verse number two. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there's nothing about his physical appearance that says, hey, this is the guy. He's not standing head and shoulders above the rest like Saul. He's not pretty. He's not this long flowing hair, ripped abs guy that we see in the pictures. And he's not white, probably. I hope that's not offensive, but he's not. Okay. He probably looks, hold on, Jewish. Whoa, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He probably did, right? He, Probably didn't look like me. If Jesus had freckles, that is my dude, man, right? Okay, no, okay. So I told you, it gets a little blasphemous sometimes. Um, there's just nothing about him. There's nothing about him that screams king. There's nothing about his physical appearance that screams redeemer. Somebody said it like this, that if you were looking for the Messiah in the crowd, Jesus would have been the last one you picked. There's nothing about him. 
that shows royalty or the Son of God even. There's nothing in him that describes this. And notice what it says, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Did you know that Jesus Christ was forsaken by friend and by foe? Listen, I expect some people to bail on me. Right? Can we get real for just a minute? I expect some people to bail on me. I also expect some people to stay with me. Right? Right? You too. You're the two. <laughs> okay? Listen. Jesus, friend and foe alike, in his darkest hour, the people who stood closest to him and said, though I will die for you, I will lay down my life for you. And when that came to the climax, they bailed. Do you know the feeling of somebody bailing on you? Do you know the feeling of somebody bailing on you when you need it the most? I mean, this is not, this is not just a casual Sunday morning. This is the depth of suffering and your friends and your family forsake you and they bail and they leave you hanging alone. He is despised and he is rejected by men, not just some men, but by all men. He is forsaken. He is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. And not just when he gets to the cross, but all of his life is marked by this suffering, by this rejection, by this despising. All of his life is marked with this grief. He is familiar with the grief. He is acquainted with it. He's not a stranger to it. Listen, you feel it, right? I mean, you know what grief is. You know what hurt is. We don't have to explain that. Nobody has to come in here and preach a sermon on what hurt is. You know what it feels like. And Jesus says, voluntarily, he says, I will acquaint myself with that. Listen, I don't get a choice, right? You understand this? We don't get, like, we don't get to pick when we're starting life whether or not we suffer hardship or not. Yeah, I would like two hardships and nothing more. And I want them to be really easy hardships. I don't want them to be real hardships. I want them to be kind of like paper cut hardships, right? We don't get to pick. I mean, life is what life is. Jesus setting in the halls of eternity says, you know what? I will enter into the depths of their grief and suffering, and I will not be a stranger to their pain. I will enter it. Not because I have to. Jesus didn't have to. Nobody twisted his arm and made him do this. He chose this. We go on. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Did you know that humanity has always had a problem with suffering? More importantly, we've always had a problem with sufferers. Right? We tend to look down upon those who are suffering. And we always want to discern why. And typically what we do is we assault blame or assign blame to that, right? They're suffering because, well, they're poor because, they're hurting because, they jacked it up. And there's some truth to that, right? I mean, everybody knows, right? You've, you've, you've jacked your own life up, right? I mean, everybody here has done that, right? So you know that some wounds are self-inflicted. But you also know that that doesn't describe it all because not all wounds are self-inflicted. Some wounds are others-inflicted. Some wounds are life-inflicted. 
And what humanity has always done is they've always taken the extreme sufferer and they've put them as outcast because they weren't fit for society. They weren't whole, they weren't healthy, they brought it down, right? All of this kind of stuff. And humanity has always tried to distance itself from suffering, rejected it, turned its back on, esteemed it of no value. That's what it means here. When you read these words of the law, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Jesus, in suffering and in agony and in rejection and despising, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, the Bible says that we turn and we hid our faces from his suffering and his shame. We didn't want to see it. We didn't want a part of it. We didn't want to notice it. We didn't want to be about that kind of stuff. We wanted to distance ourselves from it. Notice he goes on and he says this. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You know what it means to esteem him not? It means to consider him as nothing. Nothing to look upon the Son of God and look at him as though he matters not. Not just we were mean to him. Get the playground language kind of out of your mind. Not that he just went through a lot. We thought he was nothing. Now, as all this goes, hear, hear who's saying this. There's a group of people here. And they're talking about this. And they're saying, we esteemed him not. The ones who did this are the ones talking now. Follow, okay? Now watch what happens in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, you've got to follow this because this is good. Because here they, they are. They're looking at this servant. They're looking at this Messiah who will one day be exalted and be very high. And they're looking at him and they're going, we count him as nothing. And then they go, but wait a minute. Notice the repetition of words like our and we. These are meant to be emphatic. Like 12 times in these next couple of verses, we are reminded that the suffering of Jesus Christ was not for himself, but it was for others. Anybody familiar with the term vicarious? Vicarious means it's on the behalf of somebody. Now, a lot of people have a problem with vicarious suffering. We feel like it's unfair and unjust. Parents, just look at your children and go, hey, I've been vicariously suffering for you for a long time, even if your kids are seven, okay, <laughs> right? I mean, you do this, and it's not bad, right? If you don't do this, that would be bad. That would be bad if you don't sacrifice for your children, right? Anybody with me, right? Okay, this is good. This is not a bad thing, but I don't, I don't like water, and I hate water. I think water, like the devil's here, and water's here, right? I, don't even sh- I haven't showered in six months. I'm just kidding. I have. Um, But if these two were in the water, hey, it's on. And they were panicking and they were in trouble. Listen, it's on. I'm either saving them or I'm dying trying. Probably the latter, okay? But I mean, it's not like I'm not standing back and be like, oh no, oh no, too bad for you, right? This is mine and I will suffer for them. Vicarious suffering happens in all of of the world, all of life. We get a problem with it when God does it for us. It shows you how bent our heart is, right? But here's what they say. They say he was, he, was a st- he was stricken for us. He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Remember, he was a man acquainted with grief. 
He was a man of sorrows. And they're saying, listen, that was ours that he bore. It was for sin that he died. But it was not his own. It was ours. And this is what they're saying. We, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, their first conclusion was Jesus is suffering because God is angry at Jesus. Man, isn't that the tendency when people are hurting? And when we just look at them and go, well, you shouldn't have been stupid. Hey, maybe you're right. Maybe I shouldn't have been stupid. But the fact is I am sometimes stupid. Sometimes I do that. And what they do is a natural conclusion, right? Whenever somebody suffers, we always want to figure out why. Jesus is suffering, and they look at him, and they're like, that's his own fault. He made this bed. Now he has to lie in this bed. And they esteem him stricken, smitten of God. God must be angry at him, or he wouldn't be going through such. But then they say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Or some translations will say wounded. He was crushed for our iniquities. The word crushed, or in some of your translations will say bruised, it is different than our bruising. There is, somebody said there is no more, no word that can describe the intensity of pain and hurt and suffering in the Hebrew language that is higher than this word crushed. As a matter of fact, if you were to go and you were looking Genesis chapter 3.15 and the promise of the Redeemer coming through the lineage of the woman and the argument with Satan and the evil one, it talks about you will crush his heel, but he will crush your head. It means put an end to you. And so here's the picture that they're saying here. And we have to understand this. They're telling us that he is going to suffer in such a way that will blow your mind. And listen, we could talk about this, and I think you should. I think you should know this. I think you should know that there ought to be a warning label when we talk about the death of Jesus. I think you should know that there's extreme violence when we talk about the death and suffering of Jesus. I think you should understand that, hey, man, it may not be rated for all audiences. They tied him to a post so that his back muscles would be pulled tight, and then they laid whips upon that back that would rip his flesh open. They slapped him and blindfolded him and mocked him. And they said, hey, who hit you? They pierced his hands. They pierced his brow. They pierced his side. Pilate beat him so much that he was hoping to appease the crowd by beating him to the point that they wouldn't have to crucify him. How bad do you have to beat somebody that you hope that that turns the crowd away from murdering somebody? Listen, this is not easy. It shouldn't be easy. It should be heavy. But it should be heavy in a good way. He has borne my grief. He has borne my sorrow. My sin was laid upon him. He goes on the chastisement that brought us peace that stopped the enmity between God and man, that brought us peace. They now recognize that the redemption was brought through his suffering, that their freedom is what brought, his suffering is what brought their healing. This is the problem with the world's understanding of suffering, that it has no redemption to it. It hurts, and they know it, and they get it, but they can't explain it. Here's what, the, here's what Christianity does to suffering. It says, hey, I am redeeming that. I'm redeeming that. Christianity does with suffering what no other faith does with suffering and no other ideology does with suffering. It redeems it. And it redeems it by Jesus Christ entering fully into that suffering. 
and taking upon himself. Now follow in verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. Do you know why sheep go astray? Because they're sheep. And I told you I wasn't an intellect. Right? It's their nature. Here's what he's saying. Listen, you want to ever wonder why you did that? Because that's what we do. It's our nature. It's our DNA. It's our genetic makeup to turn to our own way. But now watch what he says here. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's not nature. That's choice. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 6, teaches us this, that we are all sinners both by birth and by choice. We choose it as much as we are born with it. We would choose it again. Like, we don't even need a sermon on that, right? I've got a long list of experience to verify that. And now watch this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, what? All. That all is supposed to correspond with the first all in the verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. I've used this illustration before, and I don't know why it's, but it just makes sense to me. All my sin, written and contained in this book, all of it. You're saying, preacher, you need a big book, bigger book. I know, right? I know. Some of you need a little book. I need a big book. All my sin. And this is me. And here is my sin. And I'm crushed underneath the weight of it. And I can't get out. I can't get out of it. I cannot. Whatever I do, doesn't matter how good I am. Doesn't matter how well I behave. None of those things matter. Doesn't how much I pray, how much I go to church. I can't get out up from underneath my sin. And here is Jesus, no sin. No sin. None. Because if he had this, he would be in the same predicament, right? And the beauty of Isaiah 53, verse number six, is that the Lord, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him. Did you see it? The Lord has laid on him. Now what? Now who's free? This guy. This is the guy that's free, and he doesn't just do it with my sin. Yours. These are Micah's books. He's got big sin, right? All of it. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, at least in theory and at least in potential. The scope of redemption is as big as the scope of sin. It is as universal. That means every sinner can find grace and freedom and redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's not a single soul that can't. None. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. i got to go. So let's go. Verse number seven. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. You know what we do when we suffer? We don't get quieter. Right? We don't get quieter. I ruptured my spleen. I think I've told you the story. I ruptured my spleen when I was in grade school um, in a bike accident. And I was outside. My mom was in the house with the door closed. But the pain was so intense that I screamed so loud that my mama, of course, that's a mama, right? My mama heard me and came out because she heard me in the house because the pain, pain doesn't make you quiet. Suffering doesn't make you quiet. And if you're guilty, it makes you want to defend yourself, right? And if you're not guilty, it makes you want to defend yourself. And if you feel like it's happened to you unjustly and unfairly, you want to question God. And so what happens? Even in the saints in the scripture, they never take pain silently. 
And so here's what the author is trying to tell us, that he was led as a lamb, like as a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before her shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here's what the author wants us to know, that he is unjustly tried and accused and murdered, and Jesus doesn't come to his own defense. Jesus doesn't stand up and say, hey, listen, I don't deserve this. Jesus doesn't stand and say, hey, listen, this is unfair. This is oppression. This is wrong. I'm innocent. Though he is innocent, he opens not his mouth. Why does anybody not open their mouth when they can't defend themselves? Because Jesus is voluntarily taking this upon himself. By oppression in verse number eight and judgment, he was taken away. What that means is this, is that the trial of Jesus was a miscarriage of justice. Listen, injustice is a big topic today, and I think it needs to be. I think there's a lot of it, and I probably see justice issues differently than some of the people in this room, and that's okay. We can talk about all those things. Our, our fellowship isn't based on justice issues. Hear me. My fellowship with you is based upon this man who did this stuff, Okay? But I believe injustice is a real thing. And what they're saying in verse number nine is this, is that Jesus was tried by night. Do you know how illegal that was against their own law? Everything about it was illegal. Everything about it. And here's what it says. Listen to it. He was taken away. And for his generation or his life, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living? Who paid attention to this? Cut off out of the land of the living. You know what that means? You're dead. To be cut off out of the land of the living means you are dead. Now watch this because this is really, I mean, he's going on here. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. Whenever they would crucify three thieves and criminals, they would bury them all in the same place. They wanted you to understand that this was not a good do. And so they're literally intent upon taking Jesus' body down from this cross and burying him along with other criminals. I mean, you understand that crucifixion was, you died by suffocation, right? Everybody knows this, right? Though they hung you in a position, cross legs, it's kind of debated, but they hung you in this position, right? And so literally what would have to happen for you to breathe in this position is you would have to push up and pull up on nails. Sounds fun, right? To catch your breath, but you couldn't hold that for long. And so you would go back down, and then you would catch. And so what happened is the longer you breathe, the longer you stay alive, right? Obviously, woohoo! intellect again on display. Um, and so after a while, what would happen if they were lasting too long? They would break their legs. Remember the story? They came to check Jesus, and they didn't break his legs. Again, another fulfillment of prophecy. Go figure all that, right? Because he had died. He had suffered. And he said, it is finished, which you just saw. And he gave up. They didn't take his spirit. He gave it up. And they were going to take his body down, and they were going to bury it with the wicked. But notice the next part of the verse. Notice it says about a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man. And he comes before they bury his body with the wicked. And Joseph of Arimathea says, I'll take him, and I'll bury him in my tomb that I purchased. So he's not buried with the wicked because he's not wicked. He's buried with in a rich man's tomb, ironically, that he will give back because he no longer needs it.
we go on. It looks like injustice has prevailed. It looks like wrong has won. He has been pierced. He has been wounded. He has been crushed. He has been rejected. He has been despised. He has been wrongly accused, unjustly murdered. Nobody came to his defense. He is now buried, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. But notice verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This looks like evil one, but this was the Father's plan in the councils of eternity. Peter will preach this message over and over again that this is what the hand of God had determined forehand to do. Now watch this. This is beautiful. He has put him to grief. Who did this? The Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, the idea of soul is it's deeper than your body, it's deeper than your mind, it's all of your being. And he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Please pay attention to this. How do you prolong the days of a dead man? If you're a Bible note taker, write out right beside this. He shall prolong his days. Write out right beside this. This is the promise of resurrection. The only way you prolong the days of a dead man is if you bring him back to life. And so here, 800 years before Jesus has preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Takes us back up to verse 52, or chapter 52. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul. Now, verse 10 is the father. Verse 10, we come back to Jesus, the son, and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Some of your versions will read travail. Do you know why that is? Travail is used of labor. And men have no clue what this means. Ladies, you know what this means, and you're free because you go through it to tell them and remind them all the time, right? My wife reminds these guys all the time that she went through 24 hours of labor with both of them. That's why they're weird, okay? There's a long time coming, right? And so she reminds them often, labor means this. Labor means that you suffer intensely but you reach a point when that labor was all worth it. Mamas, you remember? You remember when you were ready to kill everybody, doctors, nurses, husbands, definitely husbands who got you in this predicament, and everybody else, right? And then they put that baby in your arm? This is the picture. Jesus will see the suffering and anguish and travail of his soul, and you know what he will be? He, he won't regret it. He won't be remorseful. He's not going to look at me and say, man, I wish I hadn't have done that for you. Do you hear this? He will see the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. Remember the author of Hebrews talks about who the joy set before him endured the suffering of the cross. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be counted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will divide a portion, him a portion with the many. In other words, this is talking about his victory. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, the mission will work. He will be exalted and high and lifted up and very high. A name given above every other name and every knee and will bow and every tongue will confess. Why? Why? Listen to verse number 12. Because he poured out his soul unto death. It is a voluntary action, it says. He, nobody, nobody took it from him. 
He poured it out unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for transgressors. Here's what this is. This is the prophet telling us that the Messiah is coming and he will rule the world. But he's going to descend to the lowest parts of suffering before he does it. And 800 years later, Jesus wraps himself in human flesh and he does it to the T. There's a passage in Acts chapter 8, and we'll close with this, where Philip is a deacon in a church and The Spirit of the Lord has moved him to this place and he sees this eunuch in a chariot and apparently the chariots worked in such a way that you could read scripture while you were riding in a chariot. I don't know how that works, right? Some of you read while you're in your car. So I guess you could do it when you're in a chariot, right? So he's reading and he's reading this and the passage that he's reading is Isaiah 53. And Philip goes over to him and he goes, hey, do you know what you're reading? And he says, man, The eunuch says, I don't know. Who's he talking? Who's the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And here's what the Bible says. Then Philip began at that scripture and preached to him Jesus. Jesus. And with every crack of that whip and every blow of that hammer and every rejection by that crowd, That was Jesus. And I just want you to know today, you didn't make him do that. You didn't make him do that. He chose that for you. Here's why this is so important. That reworks my heart more than just my brain. That captures me. Because when somebody suffers on my behalf, when they don't have to suffer, that does. Listen, God sent the nation of Israel into exile and punishment and all of these things. And the only thing that happened to their heart was it got harder and harder and harder. But this is their confession. We saw him and we understand now that it was my sin that did that. Their heart has changed. This is what the beauty of Jesus does that nothing else will do. It grabs your My friend, let it grab yours. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for giving us patience this morning. Thank you for the endurance to be able to sit through and listen to this at length. But I pray more than anything your beauty has been seen. What words cannot do will never do. I pray that your spirit has opened our eyes to and that you would etch every ounce of the suffering of our Savior and Redeemer onto our heart. Everything about life would pull us away from beholding who you are. And nothing is better for our heart than beholding who you are. Give us that grace today in Jesus' name. Amen.